Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another King and Seven podcast. This is now show number 27. So we're making some headway here. And I'm very pleased to be back in the studio once more to bring to you uh, another show. Um, also, just an introduction here. I want to encourage you all again to go over to the homepage, kingandseven.com. Um, when you go to the homepage there, you'll see on the right-hand side an iTunes logo. And if you click on that, it will automatically subscribe you to the podcast. You can also find us through iTunes as well by doing a search for King and Servant. So, very much happy uh, with uh, with the way things are going with the show. And uh, speaking of the title, King and Servant, that's going to be somewhat of the subject matter at hand this evening. Because the phrase King and Servant um, was coined uh, in my own mind when I was thinking about Christ when I was thinking about who he is and what he's done for sinners. And yes, it has other nuances like paradoxical theology and other facets that uh, will be covered in in, uh, future shows. But tonight I want to look at the hypostatic union, that doctrine that teaches that Jesus is both fully God and fully man in the one person, Jesus Christ. And it's worthy of our time and attention. And I want to try and kind of break it down to the language of the pew. Uh, there's so many um, heresies out there, especially in church history. There's been so much debate, even amongst um, believing Christians, Protestant Christians, Catholic Christians, uh, who affirm the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. Um, so there's some negotiation, some navigating to do through uh, this particular topic, but it's my goal to really give the uh, the foundational truth and then its application, because I believe its application is rich, because the more we understand who Christ is, the greater we will understand ourselves and how we should worship him. I mean, if ultimately, if all things are to glorify God, and when we see there in the book of Revelation that heaven, as we speak, is preoccupied with the worship of the Lamb that was slain. Revelation 5, I'm thinking of, when it says everything in heaven and under heaven and on earth bow down and worship the Lamb. Then we should really understand who the Lamb is. And there in that apocalyptic work, we have Christ proclaiming himself to be divine. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And yet he's also described as the Lamb that was slain referring to his humanity. So we see when we look at this doctrine that the New Testament scriptures and even prophesied and shadowed and, and typified in the Old Testament scriptures this, this holistic witness to the person and nature of Jesus Christ within incarnational orthodox theology. So that's the direction I wish to go tonight and I hope you can keep with me. Because there's going to be some scriptures to go to. It's going to really uh, be taxing upon the mind. But God is worthy. God is worthy of our minds on this. Uh, there's some things that we shouldn't really think about too much. Um, I remember once having a, a friendly but borderline pointless discussion with a reformed brother of mine on the order of God's eternal decrees. And you can see there's different debates out there and how he prioritized his decrees in eternity past. And it reaches the point where it's like, this this is a bit pointless. This is a bit fruitless. 
But on a subject such as this, when we're describing who Christ is in his nature, in his personhood, in his incarnation, then that does deserve all of our attention. All of it. So, with that introduction done, let us begin by going to the Scriptures because this is uh, exclusive to special revelation. There's nothing in the creative natural realm that would give you this information about who Christ is. Yes, natural revelation does teach that God is indeed uh, divine and exists and that he has revealed it to us both innately and empirically through the creative order. But when it comes to redemption, it's unique to the scriptures. And that's where we need to go because that's where we find um, the doctrine of the hypostatic union. And for those who are new to that phrase, the hypostatic union, it's simply taken from the Greek word that means substance. So we're going to be looking at two natures that come together in the union of the one person, Jesus Christ. So let's begin where we started last week, actually, when we looked at the authority and perspicuity of Scripture. Let's go to the Gospel of John, beginning of chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this clearly teaches that Jesus, yet distinct in subsistence from the Father, shares in all the divine attributes with the Father, that he is fully God as well as fully man in his incarnation. And when we go down to verse 14, which is kind of like the bookend of the gospel prologue here, we see indeed there that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the beginning, yet the second person of the Holy Trinity and the triune God made a plan, an eternal purpose to redeem a special people through Christ Jesus and that that work that Christ Jesus would do would involve his incarnation, becoming a man, living a perfect life in our place and dying in our place in order to redeem us from our sins. And this sets the stage because it says the Logos became sax, flesh. Now there are some uses of this word in the writings of Paul that will refer to the fallen realm of sin. It speaks of the antithesis between the flesh and the spirit, that those who walk in the spirit are called children of God and those who walk in the flesh are called children of the devil. And they're put in antithesis to one another. That's not how the word flesh is being used here. The word flesh here is speaking about Christ, the divine Logos, taking on humanity, taking on a human nature. So... When we think about this, we have to be quite precise in how we articulate it and present it. And we have to do our best to honor Scripture here. Because we're going to see that there is a level of paradox when it comes to this truth. That we affirm full-heartedly, as the Council of Chalcedon uh, stated, that Jesus is fully man and fully God. That is perfect divinity and perfect humanity, 
But yet, in the one person, Jesus Christ, without confusion or mixture of nature, of natures. See, there were some early church um, heresies that taught, well, what happened was when, uh, when God the Son became flesh, basically the two natures got merged and it formed this third nature, this hybrid nature that we call God uh, the Son in his incarnational form. That's not what the Bible is teaching. And then there were other heresies that said, well, we're struggling to bring these two truths together, refused to embrace paradox. So there was a heresy called Arianism, from where the Jehovah's Witness get their theology today, which taught that Jesus wasn't divine, that he was a created being. And that's the only way you can make sense of the incarnation. So you had one attacking the humanity of Christ and one attacking the deity of Christ. And there were many other uh, early church uh, heresies that had to be addressed and refuted in order to preserve the pure doctrine of the hypostatic union as it's found in Holy Scripture. So there's pitfalls on either side here. So we need to have the key of paradoxical theology to get out the woods, so to speak. Or if not to get out the woods, to keep ourselves on the tram lines, to keep ourselves in the, in the orthodox position. We can't have exhaustive rational penetration on this. Because as we further consider this, some of you might be even thinking, well, if Jesus was both fully God and fully man in the one person, then what do we do with God's incommunicable attributes? And what do I mean by that? Well, <clears throat> God's incommunicable attributes speak of those attributes that he does not share with humanity. For example, all the big O's, all the big omnis, omnipresent, omniscience, omnipotence, and some of the Im's as well, impassable, immutable. These are all exclusive to God because he's eternal and all-powerful. So the questions were raised um, down through the centuries concerning this issue. And some said, well, if this is the case, then that means that Jesus, if he became one person, surely only had one will. He only had one one mind. And it seemed to be, at first examination, to be sound. And that's why it needed another council <laughs> to clear up some of these misunderstandings. I think it was the Second Council of Constantinople that stated that not only are we stating that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man in the one person without confusion or mixture of natures, but also that he also has two wills. He has his human will and his divine will. And he has all the attributes pertaining to divinity and he has all the attributes pertaining to humanity. So you can see here, something that is quite easily or readily accepted upon deeper scrutiny presents all types of questions or certainly does provoke thought. So getting back to that issue of how can it be then that these incommunicable attributes can be spoken of of Jesus Christ? But this is the way it works. And I once used this illustration, I heard this illustration, I find it very helpful. The Bible teaches that 
because there was the union of the one person, Jesus Christ, those attributes that are divine, divine were communicated to that person, to the one person, Jesus Christ. And likewise, the attributes of humanity were communicated to the divine, but not to the point of blurring the natures, not to the point of whereby some uh, even Orthodox Lutheran scholars have taught that the divine attributes are so kind of conferred to the human attributes that we can even speak of Christ's physical body as being omnipresent. That's not what the scriptures are teaching. And the reform community kind of um, resolved this issue. And there was a fancy word for it. It was called uh, extra Calvinisticum. And you say, wow, what's that? Well, basically, it was just the doctrine and truth that the incarnation spoke of how Christ took on human flesh, became truly a man, but yet did, did not divest himself of any divine attribute to the point where his omnipresence and his omniscience and all those other omnis were fully intact. But yet, his human nature did not have all those attributes. The person did, Jesus Christ, but not his human nature. You follow that. So there's a lot to kind of sift through here to get to basically ground zero, to get down to the foundation here of what is undeniable biblical truth uh, when it comes to this precious, profound doctrine. So there were discussions on many levels throughout church history, trying to best articulate it. And that's the best one that I've come across. And through my careful study of Scripture, that's the one that I feel most comfortable with. Yes, the, the, uh, the, Council, of Council, the Council of Chalcedon really did establish the boundaries for orthodoxy, that you have some Lutheran scholars who have this particular view, you have some Reformed scholars that have a slightly different other view, but beyond that, we see that we can have further, deeper understanding of how these two natures uh, were existing in the one person, Jesus Christ. And then beyond that, we see that Jesus remains forever the Antropus, the God-man. That he is always going to be a man. Some people have taught that, well, yes, we accept all these truths as it pertains to his earthly ministry, but then when he ascended into heaven, that's when he shed himself of humanity. Well, that won't work either. Because when we look at the scriptures again, it says that he is our great high priest. Whoever lives to intercede for us as a man. Or again in Acts 17, it says that God has appointed the day when he will judge all men through the man, Christ Jesus the man Christ Jesus because he's totally qualified to judge humanity because he became a man and he was exactly the same as us in humanity except for one important difference without sin in Hebrews 4 it says he was tempted in all areas but yet without sin that's the chief and important difference between how we understand ourselves as humans, but fallen, and how Christ was human, but yet impeccable.
that he didn't sin once throughout his entire life. But he willingly took on humanity in an act of condescension and humility in order to save us from our sins. So I want to bring this into the application so you can see how this rich doctrine should immediately impact our lives and how we behave. Let's go to Philippians. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And this is sometimes uh, sadly referred to as the Kenosis passage. And the reason why it was referred to that in church history is some uh, heretics had taught that this is the passage that proved that Christ, when he took on humanity, divested himself of certain divine attributes. That's not what it's teaching at all, as we'll see in a few moments. But we'll see, furthermore, that really it's an application to Christian humility. So let's let's read the passage together, beginning at verse 1. It says, of chapter 2, So if there is any encouragement in Christ and any comfort for love or participation in the Spirit or affection of sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what it's saying there is, there he was in the eternity past. Just like he said in John 17, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. He didn't see it a thing to be grasped. He wasn't on his journey to deity or, or onto deification, but he was already truly God with the Father and with the Spirit in that one Godhead and that one substance. So it wasn't a thing for him to envy or to grasp or to desire because he already was. But verse 7 it says, But made himself nothing, taking on a form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there he was, receiving all this worship from angels, having this eternal fellowship and bliss with the Father. And yet, in a wonderful act of love and humility, he took on human flesh. And not just to take on human flesh for 33 years and then to shed himself of that skin as if it was a long drawn out theatre production. You know, I'm no longer acting as that character anymore. I'm done with that. You know, reminds me of one of my bands that I listened to, Duran Duran. I remember that they were talking about, you know, once we finish an album and we tour, we're done with it. We're finished. We know we want to do something new. And that's such the way we think today. Oh, I've done that. Let's move on. I've had this, finished that. Let's do something new. And yes, God does say that we are to walk in newness of life and that we are being transformed from glory to glory. So in that sense, there's always this newness. And we should embrace that and seek that. But in this example, 
This is something that God did in an act of love and condescension whereby he would forever remain a man. Once heard it illustrated this way. Uh, imagine there was a, a planet or community that was basically killing one another, which is basically us. So the, the analogy isn't fast-stretched, you know, and just all types of barbarous activity was going on. And these, this community consisted of all the different breeds of dogs. The canine, you know, I don't know all the different breeds of dogs, but, you know, the, the pit bulls, you know, down to the, uh, the chihuahuas. And in this illustration, it's just an illustration, but the, uh, the, the, the God who created the dogs looks, looks down on heaven, uh, from heaven and says, look, these dogs are just killing each other. They all got rabies. You know, they're all just in a mess. You're going to have to go down and give them the remedy, give them the medicine to heal them. But what you're going to have to do, you're going to have to, in order to give it to them, you're going to have to become a dog. In fact, you're going to have to become the smallest dog. You're going to have to become a chihuahua, <laughs> a little poodle. <laughs> and then you've got to remain that way forever. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, who would do such a thing? Well, out of profound love, somebody might. But if we stretch it to its reality, when we think of how wretched and wicked we are as sinners, and how rebellious we are, and how ungrateful we are, and how we don't want God in our lives, and if God would present himself to us outside of the work of the Holy Spirit, we would reject him outright. We would even spit in his face. And given that context of our rebellion, God sent his son to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sins. In fact, when we look at his passion on the cross, he quotes Psalms 22 when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's an allusion to that whole psalm basically being fulfilled in that moment on the cross. And it's interesting when you read down that psalm, I think it's Psalm 22 verse 6 it says I am not a man but a worm and it comes the whole study in that how it comes from the Hebrew worm taller and some have argued that there was a type of worm that lived in the Middle East that uh, that was called by that name and in order for its uh, its offspring if you will to live that that worm would have to die and it would tie itself to a tree and after the worm had died, it would just leave a crim crimson stain. And after a few days, it would go to white as snow. And some of you might be thinking of the scriptures. But regardless of that's the case, certainly this is the case. That Jesus Christ, God the Son, became a man. And not only that, he became the loss of men. And was flogged, murdered, and humiliated on the cross of Calvary so that we can have life and forgiveness of sins and joy evermore. That's the reason why we should study this doctrine, so we can understand exactly what he's done for us, and so that we can fully appreciate our Saviour, and so that we can worship him correctly and truly as Theanthropus, the God-man. That he's not just some distant, vague saviour of history, but he is God himself in the person Jesus Christ. 
seated right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for the saints. And that's why Hebrews says he is able to save to the uttermost all those who come unto him. Because he ever lives to intercede from the, for them. That there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus. So if he hadn't done this, first of all, there would be no salvation. But secondly, we wouldn't understand God's love in the clarity that we understand it today. Because it says in Romans 5, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God demonstrated his love towards us in doing so. Say sin never entered the world. Say that Adam fulfilled the covenant of works as it's known. Then yes, we would have worshipped the triune God of the universe forever and ever. But no incarnation, no second Adam, no redemptive truth. So that's why God decreed these things the way he did. This is why he had this eternal purpose. So that in the ages to come, he may show the kind intention of his will towards us in Christ Jesus. But if we don't understand fully who Jesus is, as it pertains to what's revealed in the word, then we're going to be impoverished spiritually and intellectually. And secondly, we won't have the right context in which to live our Christian lives. Because if we can understand this truth, then how ought we behave? If God the Son humbled himself to the point of being a man and dying that humiliating death upon the cross, I think we can humble ourselves a little bit. I mean, we don't have to do all the things that he did. He's the prime example. And I know people take this, this idea, oh, Jesus is just an example way too far. No, he's not just an example, but he is an example as well. Not to mitigate one iota against the gospel of justification by faith alone, but he does leave for us an example. And that's why I believe Apostle Paul said, I fill up in my flesh and Colossians what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That doesn't mean he's contributing to the atonement or anything like that, as some of us have erroneously taught. But it dovetails perfectly with Philippians when it says, I want to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed unto his death, so that I may obtain unto the resurrection of life. So you see here that this doctrine should color everything. That it should influence every area of your life. And the primary application is that of servanthood and humility. King and servant. And Christ the great king became a servant. He even washed the feet of the disciples. He even washed the feet of Peter who first refused knowing that just, just within moments he would betray him. So in a betrayal, he would deny him. Just to think that Jesus loved him so profoundly that he even washed his feet. So in our lives, can we do with more humility or less humility? I'm thinking for everybody listening, including myself here, it's more humility. That what God asks of us 
is so minuscule in comparison for, in comparison rather to what Christ did for us. I mean, I know some people who can't humble themselves for a second. Can't even go to a room and be small. And see, then this is this is a as I observe it, a real problem in our culture. And yes, it's partly narcissism that we get into ourselves to the point where we can't possibly be small. We can't possibly be low. And what we end up doing is end up being those things that we're striving against. And what I mean by that, look at all the examples in the media of people who go to exalt themselves. Think of, I don't know, it's movie stars, pop stars. They're always called stars, aren't they? They're always called stars. Or even now in politics, you can be a star, right? Even John Stewart <laughs> is getting his moment in the sun. Be a star. But the thing about shooting star is it lasts close to a nanosecond and it fizzles out and it goes and it will be forgotten. But all those acts of service in God's kingdom, the Bible says your labor is never in vain, but is bearing up much fruit for eternal life. So in other words, when I act in humility, taking this example of Christ, you know what, folks? I never look back and cringe. Oh, my goodness. What was I like when I was humbling myself that day? Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so... No, we, 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 wouldn't, we don't do that. The stuff I look back and cringe on is when really I was kind of pushing myself forward, when I was <laughs> trying to be somebody, you know, you name it, being a wannabe. And that's when I look back and go... Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. So it's in our interest, even in this life, let alone the next life, to follow this model that Christ has set for us. So I think that's where I'll conclude it, and that's where I'll leave it. But meditate upon this truth this week. And if you've got some questions theologically about some of the things I said about the hypostatic union, feel free to write to me. But the point that I want to drive home is um, we all... Could, could always do with more humility in our lives. And yes, we, sh we are called to lead. We are called to, to dominion, as Genesis says. But if it's to the detriment of true biblical humility, then what does that dominion count for? I would say absolutely nothing. So be challenged this evening, but also be motivated and encouraged that Christ has done it all but he's left us the example to follow. So let's do it together by God's grace as we walk by faith in the Spirit. God bless you all, and I'll see you next time.